Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones begins this Sunday, which means binge mode Game of Thrones makes its long-awaited return, with your resident experts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion guiding you through each episode. And to get your fix every Sunday night, Chris Ryan joins Mallory and Jason on Talk the Thrones, a Twitter after show recapping each episode throughout the season. So make sure you check out the Binge Mode podcast on Apple or Spotify, Talk the Thrones on Twitter, and for even more Thrones coverage, you can head to theringer.com. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We have talked about two films already in this Marvel Month series. The first was Captain America, the first Avenger with Amanda Dobbins. The second was Marvel's The Avengers with Chris Ryan. I am joined today by someone I would describe as a significantly deeper comic book expert, and we're going to talk about what uh, I think is maybe the best Marvel movie, and that's kind of where I want to start. I'm here with David Shoemaker. David, what's up? Not much is up. It's been fun rewatching Guardians of the Galaxy on and off over the past couple of weeks. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I, you know, I really had a lot of fun listening to it. You know, we, we got a little bit of flack for some of the conversations we've had about these first two films. And the reason that we wanted to talk about those movies at the beginning of this series is because Marvel didn't totally have their tone and their approach figured out in the early stages of these films. Phase one, they were still kind of working out the kinks. They were figuring out who their characters were. They were figuring out how to portray them. Something about Guardians of the Galaxy, though, man, I feel like things really click into, into place. Rewatching this movie, I, I I found myself falling in love all over again. Yeah, I mean, it's really a spectacular movie, and it's and and it's hard to find a lot of fault with it. Um, you know, it's it's part of that is because it's just such a. I mean, the other I'm sure you I know you've talked about this that that all of the Marvel movies, you know, what makes them work is that they sort of attach themselves to a to a genre or to a style. But this is just so much, like so much further than you know. Winter Soldier is a '70s spy thriller. You know, this is just a straight up science fiction movie. Yes, and uh, and and it and it's able to sort of just relish in itself in a way that that you know it took a, a little bit more, several movies of establishing this the background and the tone for something someone like Iron Man to fully do. Yeah, and I don't think Marvel ever could have started in space. You know, uh, doing an outer space adventure is something they had to kind of work their way up to. And I think we'll talk about this a lot on this show, but it's interesting that that does seem like where Marvel writ large is going. You know, in a lot of ways, Captain Marvel, of course, is totally a science fiction outer space movie. It seems Mm -hmm. like the quest to fight Thanos in the new Endgame movie is also going to largely take place intergalactically. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy, though, it has this great tone. It It is science fiction, but... You know, right from the jump in the movie, you're you're immediately thrust into a kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark adventure story too. Um, what do you remember from your sort of, your sort of anticipation of the movie beforehand, as somebody who knows a little bit about the Guardians characters? Well, I mean, I the the Guardians characters that are in this movie are not the Guardians characters that I grew up with. I mean, there was a there was a pretty a pretty famous Guardians of the Galaxy series uh, that started in the late '90s that Jim Valentino did. Um, that was based on a, a, a group of ca- characters by the same name from the 60s and 70s, I guess. Um, and that was just a little bit hammy. And, and I mean, the comic book back then was, I mean, even the one in the 90s in the gritty era was supposed to be a departure from all the Wolverines and Lobos and Punishers around. It was a, a little bit more just straightforward, you know, upbeat adventure. Um, and then they, the, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy that's in the movie was a creation, I believe this team was put together in 2010 by uh, Abnett and Lanning, who were just two really, you know, solid Marvel inter- scribes of the cosmos. Um, I mean, not just Marvel, they've written for everybody. They did a lot of Green Lantern and stuff like that too. But but they made this, they they put this, this team together, called them the Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, with, you know, sort of only a passing uh, connection to the original team. And then Kevin Feige was just like, you know, saw this happening. And, and he was giving interviews sort of contemporaneously where he was like, yeah, there's this cool new comic called The Guardians of the Galaxy. They're doing some really interesting stuff. That said, you know, I think that we've had this conversation before. I was never a big fan of like Cosmos and comic books, you know? I mean, even when like the X-Men went into outer space to fight the brood or something, I was always just a little bit, you know, I, I would rather see them back at the mansion playing softball. 
Um, I was the same way. I was not, I was not a, an outer space comic book consumer really at all. And even when things like Secret Wars were happening, I found myself somewhat um, detached from the storytelling because it almost felt too big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there's, I mean, yeah, you can certainly see see the the charm uh, in the writing of some of these space opera. I don't even know how to say it. Uh, space opera composers, the Jim Starlins of the comic book world, but there's, you know, obviously a lot of that in just like the science fiction novel world too. And and again, I was much more of a fantasy guy, you know, than than like this than space opera novels, but. Um, you can see the charm in what they're doing now. I mean, it was this sort of super trippy, just like anything goes. I mean, you'd think anything could go in a Superman comic book, but but this is really anything goes. You're just pulling, you're just creating alien races and and superpowers, and and you know even the laws of like galactic physics don't need to apply. It's there, there's there there the the palette is so broad that sometimes the stories can be a little bit more epic. More, I mean, obviously more epic, more kind of classical and Shakespearean and everything else. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity there and they really, you know, milked it for all it was worth. Yeah. And you know, I found myself rewatching the Avengers and thinking that the whole Chitari storyline was sort of underdeveloped and stupid. And the phraseologies that were being thrown around was not well-developed. This movie is not dissimilar in that it just throws a lot of terminology, a lot of planetary history, a lot of like race Mm -hmm. war at you and you never feel overwhelmed by it. If you don't fully understand it, it doesn't really matter. But if you take the time to unpack it, it's fun to learn about. And that is the sign of a movie that is extremely thoughtfully composed. You know, the entire world that James Gunn, who is the co-writer and director of this movie puts together is really, really considered. Um, I I found that as I rewatched his, or as I watched for the first time, his commentary track on the movie, you can see he's given this stuff an, an extraordinary amount of thought and sometimes that seems that could seem like overkill, but in this case, it really pays off because everything feels easily understandable. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And if I were at the table giving notes on the script, I'm sure I would have jumped out of my chair and said, no, you can't have three and a half layers of villains, right? Yes. I mean, that's just one example. But there's like, there's it it, it seems like it's going to be, com- I mean, to, to, to describe the, the plot, is, it's very complicated. But it's told immaculately. I mean, it's just, it seems, it's just so simple and straightforward on the screen. And I, I think part of that is, I mean, we'll get into the, you know, MacGuffin conversation later on, but part of it is that, like, the actual plot is utterly empty. I mean, and, I mean, it, it'll matter more going down, I mean, as we obviously get to the Infinity War. Um, but there's not, there's not a whole lot of, you know, exposition on technology or, you know, exposition on on this, you know, why, why we're, pursuing this thing that we're pursuing and that way it's really it is very it, it does relate to indiana jones at least more of like the beginning of raiders of lost ark like you mentioned where you're just you're in there looking for an idol and let's go i want to pick up on that very quickly but first let me read some kind of key data points to this movie to situate us so guardians of the galaxy was, was released on august 1st 2014 its director as i mentioned is james gunn his previous two movies as a director are the gross out horror comedy slither and mm-hmm. 2010's superhero deconstructionist tale Super. His previous scripts, I think, are very interesting, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about them at some point. They include the trauma movie Tromeo and Juliet, another superhero deconstruction called The Specials, Scooby-Doo, Dawn of the Dead, Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. So he co-wrote this movie with Nicole Perlman, who was a part of the Marvel Writing Academy, and she wrote the first script. And then Gunn came in and reportedly rewrote most of the script. So the movie stars a lot of people who at the time, I think you would have thought, I'm not sure that this person should be in this movie. And now I feel like they're fundamental to the Marvel story, which is kind of an interesting tweak that they've made too. So it's Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, Dave Bautista, your beloved Bautista, uh, Bradley Cooper, Vin Diesel, Lee Pace, Michael Rooker, who has appeared in all of uh, James Gunn's films, Karen Gillan, Jaiman Hansu, who we just saw recently in Captain Marvel, Glenn Close, and John C. Riley. Hell of a cast. Um, this movie made $773 million. Its runtime is a, a quaint and elegant 122 minutes. And it had a 91% score from the critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 92% score from audiences who gave it an A in cinema score. David. I feel like this movie is one of the few that is a sort of effectively remembered. You know, that it's like, going back and rewatching The Avengers, I forgot how much I had forgotten. And yes. this movie, I felt like I was back in, in, a, in, a, in a warm, cozy bed. Did you have this, a similar feeling going back to it? I'm pretty sure I fully missed an Iron Man movie and didn't realize it until <laughs> yes. like, four, like three years ago. Yes. Uh, yeah. 
I, I yes, I I, re- I remember I remember this very well. Now there's there's definitely parts that I that I didn't remember. Um, and and sort of that. I mean, some of that's willful. I mean, when when Thanos and and Ronan are having their you know growly conversation. I mean, anytime that happens in a movie where like two gravel voiced CGI villains are like having a, a talk, you know, I, I just I my brain turns off. Yeah, it's not know? the best. But, for, for, but um, again, that's like what you were talking about. You don't need to understand like the finer points of the, you know the details of the story to really to follow the 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 tempo you know to follow the tune of the movie. But uh, in retrospect, I mean, I know that James Gunn um, wrote most or all of this, but I but I kept wondering how much of a hand Feige and the rest of just like what, whatever the 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 Marvel the MCU brain trust had a hand. I wonder how much power control they exerted over the script because it has so much to do with everything that follows. That was exactly my impression too. I was like, it's incredible. The whole Infinity War saga is basically laid out in this movie. You know, they we we meet Thanos really for the first time, him talking as mm-hmm. John, as portrayed by Josh Brolin. We understand why the Infinity Gems matter. We understand why space and the quest to kind of pursue all of these things matter. We understand the idea of like team building. You know, this movie is like mm-hmm. a weirdly a better team building movie than the Avengers in many ways. And also just tonally, you know, we talked about that Raiders of the Lost Ark moment, you know, right at the beginning of the movie where Chris Pratt's character, Star-Lord, a.k.a. Peter Quill, during the title sequence, is entering a cave. And it seems like he is questing for some sort of magical item. And then all of a sudden, Red Bones' Come and Get Your Love kicks in on the soundtrack. And this movie just sort of turns into singing in the rain inside of a cave. You know, Chris Pratt is kicking the water around. He's grabbing these rodent amphibian creatures and singing into them. And the tone has just completely shifted. And it shows Mm -hmm. a kind of like a lightness in the movie that I think these other movies have have had in contained sequences. But the Guardians of the Galaxy sort of like uses as its defining tone. I was just reminded again of just kind of like how generally happy that made me and how smart it was to make a movie that could be deemed silly if played straight uh, mm-hmm. to make it silly so that it feels more straight. Yeah, I mean, I th- I, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's uh, we've talked before on this podcast about how what really makes the Marvel Universe movies click that that the other, the MCU movies click that, that the DC movies, the X-Men movies don't all have, uh, even some of the Spider-Man movies, is a level of self-awareness, you know? I mean, that they can just, that, that, you know, Robert Downey Jr. can wink at the camera in a way that someone else in that role wouldn't be able to. And certainly the direction, you know, from top down, you know, production really helps. There's a self, you can be self-aware, self-aware that you're making a comic book movie only to a certain point because at the end of the day, you're still making a comic book movie. But what Guardians has is this this vast history of sci-fi that they can kind of take the piss out of, right? They, I mean, they have, it's a, it's a much bigger um tapestry of of uh, references that they can make and 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 just you know much many more you know ETIs that they can that they can wink at the camera with and and I and <laughs> just to 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 start off the movie with just such silliness I don't think that I don't think that could have played uh in one of the, you know in the first Iron Man certainly not the first Thor you know the first Hulk anything like that it would have seemed like it would have seemed just like silly you know, and and you need to you and and when you're when you're telling a story that's inherently silly, you have to be a little bit earnest. And they were just able to go right in with the silliness, and and it really affect effectively like just dis, uh, disarm or you know yeah disarm the entire audience, which is you know I think that's why you see such high scores. Yeah, I think also in that very first sequence, you see that moment where Star Lord Peter Quill grabs the orb, and then all of a sudden these Kree soldiers arrive, led by Jaiman Hansu, and. Peter Quill does his whole explicative moment where he clarifies that he is Star-Lord and he's a, mm-hmm. an international ravager or an intergalactic ravager. And Jaiman Hunter's character just basically says like, who? Like he has no idea who he is. And that's the same feeling that the audience has as we're watching this movie. We're just like, we don't know who the Guardians are. They're not Captain America. They're not Iron Man. They're not the Hulk. And so kind of that, that self-referentiality is, is a tool that's wielded really effectively throughout this movie. I, I was curious... How familiar were you with James Gunn and kind of what he did before this movie? Not at all. I mean, not. I mean, re- really, there was. Uh, you know, I was dimly. I was dimly aware of the you know superhero movie that he did. What was it called? It was called Super. 
Super right, and I mean, the, but I, I don't. I, I had never seen it. I, 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 my entire perception of James Gunn was hearing people say that's a good choice when when he was chosen. But you know, all of those. I mean, I, at, at this point, I was just following blindly the the brilliance of you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, so Super is kind of an interesting text. Uh, it's essentially about a, a fry cook who, after his wife leaves him, tries to become a vigilante superhero of some kind. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very, it's a very um, kind of uh, it's a not withholding movie it's very violent it's very crude it's very angry and it feels in keeping with Gunn's background which kind of comes out of Troma which is this independent film studio based out of New York on the ringer last year we had a really great piece about the whole Mm -hmm. history of that that studio and James Gunn kind of made his bones writing for this company which is like very outlandish and very over the top and very exploitation friendly and it requires an understanding of genre in a pretty deep and significant way. And so I thought that James Gunn was definitely an inspired choice when they brought him on. I don't think I realized quite how pop and colorful and, as you said sort of before, sort of space operatic his movies could be, mostly just because he'd been working with such small budgets in the past. And it's kind of amazing to say, James Gunn, here's $200 million, show me what you can do. It made me think that this, more than anything, set the template for how they would choose filmmakers in the future, too. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, just to, I mean, listen, it's important. You watch these movies, and I don't want to, like, you know, break kayfabe too much to use the wrestling (laughs) term, but, like, it's, you can't watch the entire, any number of these Marvel movies and not come away with the the feeling that, like, the directors are not in charge of CGI, right? right? The directors are not in charge of the color, of the color palette, of the, you know, of post pro. You know, they they don't, they're, they're not, they're, they're doing, they, they, they might have an incredible amount of control. But visually, I mean, these the, these decisions are being made from on high. And, you know, I don't know how much, uh, it, it. I guess before the Marvel, before the MCU, I think that, I don't know, I don't know if every movie goer out there agreed with me, but it did seem like that CGI, you know, this sort of sci-fi, you know, massive CGI enterprise was almost like a, a, a space reserved for a certain sort of like CGI auteur, you know, the sort of, George Lucas, James Cameron, like you have to understand the technology from top to bottom to be able to make a movie this way. And I think what the, what Marvel effectively did was just kind of toss that out the window and say like, don't worry, we'll handle that. You just make, you know, Robert Downey Jr. look funny and, uh, and, and, you know, we'll fly the armor around and don't worry about it. You know, I mean, I think, I think it was, um, this is obviously a much more complicated movie. And this is where Marvel goes in a really, um, you know, production heavy direction and and give James Gunn all the credit for making that seem sort of seamless. Yeah, I agree. It's funny if you watch the credits of these movies, you'll always see two or three executive producers bound together on on the credit sequence. And one of those producers is usually the production producer and one of those producers mm-hmm. is usually the post-production producer. And the post-pro producer is the person who handles pre-visualization with the designers and the people who are handling all the CGI execution and the way that they're staged. It's funny. I had um, David Sandberg, the director of Shazam on the show earlier this week. And something he said to me was very cool. He said, so for previs, rather than do these massive storyboards or, um, you know, you know, hire somebody to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to visualize them. What I do is I just set up a camera and I take uh, superhero toys and I just position them the way that I want to. And I film that. And, <laughs> and I don't get the impression that that's the way the Guardians of the Galaxy was made. It's a little bit too grand of a stage to imagine something like that. And so I think you're right that one of Gunn's great successes, aside from the tone and identifying the right inspirations and picking kind of a perfect cast, which we should talk about, was making that wham-bam Marvel CGI stuff feel coherent and feel a part of his story. Um, Let's talk about that cast a little bit. So at this point in 2014, Chris Pratt was a star of Parks and Recreation. Oh, yeah, Shockwire! I call it that because if you take a shower and you touch the wire, you die! Sort of. Yeah. He had played Scott Hatterberg in Moneyball. Hello, Scott. Yes. It's Billy Bean of the Oakland A's. Yes. Can we talk? Uh, yeah. You want to let us in? Yeah. Um, he was a very strong dude in Zero Dark Thirty. So, uh, hey, excuse me, but what do we, what do we need this for in, in Libya? I mean, Gaddafi's anti-air is virtually non-existent. Maya, you want to brief him? And a little bit earlier that year, he had voiced Emmett Brakowski in the Lego movie. 
You know, maybe let us handle it. I don't know that I saw Chris Pratt becoming the most important action star of his generation, but I feel like this is the movie that is largely responsible for that. Oh, 100%. This this broke him out. Now, there's part of me in watching this movie and in considering how significant the comedy was before, I mean, it, where, I, where, I had, where I wondered whether or not you know, there was a whole sort of like media campaign about like the shock of him being cast in this part before the movie came out. Yes. At least this is my recollection. Yeah, because he was there, fat I, Andy I, from Parks and Rec. Exactly. I couldn't help but to sit there and wonder how much of this was just like totally canned. You know, like to, like they they knew they were gonna they were gonna have him in the movie whether or not he got a six pack, and they just you know they they, they he was that important. I mean, he clearly is that important to this film. Um, but this definitely was what launched him. You know, put him on that platform to be able to you know chase dinosaurs and. And uh, make you know questionable decisions on space stations with Jennifer uh, Lawrence. Oh wow! I'm looking forward to having you back on this show for the the Passengers Month, where we'll be devoting a, <laughs> a series of podcasts to the wonderful film Passengers. Um, what about Dave Bautista? You know a little bit about him. Um, you know he is a key figure in this story. Yeah, I think I saw this movie. That I'm trying to remember the day after it came out. Um, because I, I I know I saw it opening weekend, but I remember going in and the only thing that I had heard from people was I got a number of text messages that said Batista's really good. Yes. And like, they, they were all shocked. He was certainly, you can certainly put him in the, he's a revelation category. Um, Batista is, how to describe Batista the professional wrestler? He, you know, I, I mean, I guess I, I should say plainly, he came out of the WWE. Left a couple years before this, left professional wrestling to pursue acting, and it seemed totally misbegotten. Um, because as great as as entertaining as he could have, as he was as a wrestler, no one ever mistook him for The Rock, you know. And 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 the and I guess the fear was that he mistook himself for for Dwayne Johnson. Um, but he went out to Hollywood and and then and just I mean became an actor. You know, he, he's not, he, he didn't seem particularly interested in being The Rock. And, and, and you know, he'll go on and on and every, every chance he put a, a tape recorder in front of his face now and say that, and, you know, any comparisons to The Rock are insulting because he's a character actor. But I think, I mean, it's kind of true. He, he could have been cast for his body and, I mean, his literal body. And, and he ended up being, in some ways, sort of, you know, the, he don't want to say the heart of the film, but the sort of like, the, as far as like the sense of humor goes, he's 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 you know he's the straight man. He's really important to everything that you know all the jokes that get told. I completely agree. It's funny you can see in the early days of his acting career. So he leaves WWE in 2010, and his first couple of films are The Scorpion King, Three, Battle for Redemption, The Man with the Iron Fists, Riddick. He's he's taking basically you know D plus rock roles because that's probably all he could get. And mm-hmm. I do feel like this movie not only reveals his talent as an actor and as a sort of a physical presence on screen, but it also unlocks his whole career. I mean, it's very similar to Chris Pratt. I think without this script and this performance, he's not appearing in movies like Blade Runner 2049. You know what I mean? He's not appearing in, you know, this summer, he's in two different action comedies. He's he, he's not even a character actor anymore. He's like Bruce Willis or, or Mel Gibson in a lot of ways. You know, he's going to be in <laughs> yeah. Stuber and My Spy. And he's, yeah. he's got this great hybrid of like Schwarzenegger meets Bruce Willis going on that is pretty unique in American movies in 2019. Um, I, I also agree that like he has a lot of emotional weight in the movie because, you know, he's a, basically a character avenging his family's death at the hands of a mad titan and, and, and Ronan, uh, who I think we'll, maybe we'll talk about a little bit. And mm-hmm. he's also really funny, as you say. And he, he is a person who kind of unites this group in a, in a significant way. Um, I'm curious to see where Dave Bautista's career goes from from here. Um, Zoe Saldana was the only person in this cast who I thought that makes sense because she had already been a differently colored uh, CGI oriented character in Avatar. Yeah, and so it seemed yeah. like she was she had the experience necessary to pull off Gamora. Um, I, I didn't really know anything about Gamora coming into this movie though, and she has turned out also to be incredibly significant to the story. Incredibly significant, and honestly, as someone who wasn't. The biggest Thanos head, like I said, going into this, um, 
I, I remember being slightly worried that she had that she was settling for a smaller role than maybe she deserved. Yeah, you know, in the in, in the MCU. I mean, but you see that over and over again, right? That you're that you're there's so many of these superhero movies getting made that you wonder why anybody takes a small role. You know, any any actor of any significance would take a small role because it's like maybe if I hold out a year, I can get the lead in the next Marvel movie. You know, or I can I can be a superhero that that has a chance to return. Now, listen, I mean, they they clearly have. I'm I'm sure they're making some some you know promises to people along the line. I don't think uh, anybody watched this movie and thought that that Karen Gillan's character was going to be you know a returning hero or anything. And they and 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 that's panned out in a sort of interesting way. Yeah, I call um, this the Sebastian Stan corollary. You know, Sebastian yes. Stan came in and signed on for nine Marvel movies with the expectation <laughs> that at some point he was going to get to do something cool. And it did take about nine of these movies, and now he's getting to do cool stuff. Yeah, it's true. Um, there, there's, I mean, the whole. I mean, we can we can go into the cast, but I mean, every everybody is just. I mean, I think it, it just goes to show the confidence to which they made the movie. Every decision was made with great confidence, and everybody was cast with with confidence. And it was either the confidence of, um, you know, don't worry, you're this this is a starring role, even though you're in green face paint, um, you know, for for some for for some people. And then there's the confidence of like, yeah, I can make Dave Batista into a major movie star. I mean, that's a, that's confidence of a different sort. Um, but that just shows how, you know, how, how they, how, how James Gunn went about making this movie. Did you find yourself thinking this movie is going to unlock the future of all these stories as you were watching it? <laughs> uh, I mean, it certainly is, when we talked a little bit about it, it certainly is a more sort of expansive, literally and metaphorically, and, and just sort of more... You know, it's it's more generous with its humor and with its, you know, I mean, it's 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 a sort of just more extra version of all the Marvel movies that had come before, um, and that is definitely the direction that the film, I mean, that the films have gone. I don't know how much longer they can stay in space after after this next movie, um, because it is, you know, it's a it's a very specific type of storytelling. Um, but I, you know, yeah, I mean, I was. I, I didn't. I did not realize that 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 the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to be, you know, hopping in jets or hopping in space shuttles to go meet the Guardians of the Galaxy. I was ex- expecting the reverse that they would end up, you know, in in Iron Man's New York at, at some point or something. You know, the, 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 I, I was I was not prepared for for how much uh, this kind of laid the groundwork. Yeah, we really only experience Earth in that opening introductory story about Peter Quill as his mother is dying in a hospital bed and the kind of gift that she gives to him and the sort of message that she sends to him about his father. And then everything else is intergalactic. Um, I really love the inspirations for this movie that Gunn has talked about and that he even literalizes in the movie. I think they, I think at one point Quill actually mentions both Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Maltese Falcon. Um, I'm not totally sure how Peter Quill saw the Maltese Falcon as a young boy on Earth, but that's maybe for another podcast. But you know, you've, you've got a <laughs> huge Dirty Dozen thing going on in this movie, and I tend to think that anytime you put together like a band of rapscallions, that's just going to work. Um, similarly, there's a straight up visual homage to the usual suspects, you know, that series of sequences after the guardians are arrested and brought to, uh, the kiln, which is like the prison. Um, yeah. And they're sort of interviewed and, and identified as, uh, as criminals. Um, it's just overt usual suspect stuff going on. Would you think of any other movies as you were watching this? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, uh, you know, we mentioned the Indiana Jones stuff, um, there's definitely some Back to the Future vibes in the whole, and and just you know the Peter Quill persona, yeah, and just and 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 um, and yeah, I mean that that was besides the one you mentioned. I think that was the big one for me. I mean, there's certainly a lot of uh, this. It doesn't exist without Star Wars. Um, yes. it doesn't exist without uh, Star Trek. And actually, one one of the kind of incidental um, uh, notes about the comic book is that the '90s version of the comic book was produced specifically be- to, to to try to uh, siphon off some of the success of Star Trek, Star Trek: The Next Generation, the TV show. Oh, interesting. Um, but um, I mean, and that also shows how much our you know pop culture landscape has sort of been sent through a funhouse mirror. That like comic books are trying to get like a trickle down effect from a network television sci-fi show. But um, uh, but but yeah, I mean, that I I would say the movies you mentioned for sure, and just the sort of sci-fi uh, you know canon. I like to talk about the MacGuffins on this show, um, <laughs> partially because MacGuffins historically don't actually matter. There's something that 
the lead characters are in pursuit of that won't ultimately have um, a significant impact on the story. You know, think specifically of like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. That never actually comes to bear what's in the briefcase or how powerful it is. Or if you think about, you know, noir movies from the 40s and 50s, like Mike Hammer movies where somebody's carrying an A-bomb in a briefcase, but you never actually see the A-bomb go off. It's just something that everybody's in pursuit of. This These movies are different because the MacGuffins are actually meaningful. Um, in this movie for the first hour, hour and a half, we think that the orb is the MacGuffin, when in fact we meet the collector played in an absolutely absurd cameo by Benicio Del Toro um, as the collector who is in pursuit of the orb because inside exists the power stone. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you just, just generally, I'm curious for the David Shoemaker take on the MacGuffinization of, of Marvel movies. Listen, you can't. I mean, I said this before. You can't. You can't bog a movie down in in in, in this stuff, right? I mean, my 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 one tried and true superhero movie take for the longest time, and this is before. I mean, this is this is dates back to way before the MCU. Was that you had first of all, you had to connect the plot of the movie and the origin story together, right? I right. mean, the the villain had to be involved because otherwise, you spent the entire movie. I mean, you could spend an hour with the origin story and then all of a sudden you're like, and now let's explain how the penguin came to be, you know, or whatever. It's just, <laughs> it became, it's just too much, too much backstory, too much information to try to get to where we are. Oswald Cobblepot? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, th- those, th- th- there was no, there wasn't a, a backstory in that movie. That's just, that's just, you know, I'm making stuff up. But, but any, but, but it's true that, that, um, a Batman backstory, I should say. But, th- but, it, but what these MacGuffins, you know, MacGuffin like the, power orb or whatever accomplish is that like they literally they it's literally meaningless right i mean it the fact that it goes on to matter so significantly is brilliant but if it were called anything even one percent more complicated than that it would have been too confusing right i mean it was just it's the point is there's a glowing thing that they have to keep away from the bad guy it's just a it's just a a cosmic hot potato and they and (laughs) anything more complicated than that would have totally derailed the momentum of the film and i think that just being being aware of that is part of the genius i agree and i think also it's it's a good way of explaining why someone is evil just fu- saying like this thing is very powerful and the person who wants to get his hands on it wants to do so towards evil means is effective storytelling. So, you know, we meet Ronan the Accuser who is played by the aforementioned Lee Pace who I guess is a, a sort of a Creed general, a Creed leader of some kind. And yeah. he is... He, by the way, auditioned, he auditioned for the for the role of Peter Quint, Peter Quill, sorry. Yes, and, uh, and, and, and very thankfully did not get the role because I don't think Lee Pace would have been right for this. Uh, but that, that goes back to my other thing. It's like Lee Pace is in there auditioning to be like, a, you know, the lead leading man. They're like, do you want to be this blue-faced, like, growly <laughs> guy? And he's just like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's like, why would... I don't know, that was sort of the Lee Pace moment. I, I bet he wishes he would have held out for you know, uh, D-Man or, or just some some other Marvel character with, you know, a little bit more FaceTime. But the, but um, but um yeah, I mean, Ronan the Accuser, uh, it's just a, an, an, another, just one of the characters from comic book lore that they, you know, use pretty effectively. Um, I think what, I will say this about Lee Pace's performance. He's, he vamps a lot as this character. He sure does. In a very, in, in, but he doesn't, but he's not playing it for laughs. No, Or at no. least he's, he's not outwardly, you know, he's not, he, he's not, he's not being silly. And I think that's, again, part of what makes it really work. Because if you have a, if, if this is like an Austin Powers villain, then Star, you know, then, then Peter Quill playing against him doesn't have the same, the same kind of humor. Um, Do you think the Guardians of the Galaxy exists inside of the Austin Powers universe? <laughs> I think that that's a. I, I think that that's an interesting question. We should see if Gold uh, Gold Member is going to be in Endgame. Did he get erased <laughs> in Endgame? Um, yeah, I, you're completely right. Though Ronan the Accuser is played very, very straight, and that's true. Maybe only of Nebula, and every other character has kind of a wink and a nod thing going on. Even Thanos, you know, has a smirky Josh Brolin, I'm in charge kind of affectation to the character. And Lee Pace is, you know, he's not, this is not pushing daisies Lee Pace. This is like a thunderous, angry, almost like when you would cast, you know, Derek Jacoby or Laurence Olivier in a preposterous movie near the end of their career to, to almost like certify that there is something serious going on here. Um, what do you think of, uh, of Yandu Odanta, who is kind <laughs> of a villain and kind of an ally of Peter Quill played by the wonderful lunatic actor Michael Rooker? 
I think he's fantastic. I think he's, I mean, I think that, that I mean, there's, talk about references. When he first pops up, you definitely get a little bit of that, a, a little bit of that Max Hedrum vibe. Yes. Um, uh, and I'm sure uh, people listening to this about like 1% are old enough to, to remember <laughs> that. But, but, but yeah, I mean, he, he, the fact that he like first comes, the, he, his first appearance is just on the sort of like video phone and he's just like really like comically just, you know, getting pissed off at, at, at Peter Quill. Um, I, I, you know, I think that I think that the, the, he's the total opposite of you know Lee Pace's Ronan. He's he he is he's just ham, you know, and the grease running off of it. He's 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 just playing this up. I mean, he's just he's just so extra in this movie, and and I and and, and everything that he's done um, for them since, and and that's who Michael Rooker is. Um, but I think it was a it's a it's a cool look for that character too. You know, he, he has a much longer comic book history than some of these other ones, but it's a uh, yeah, I just I, I I was I was a big fan of that of that character. I mean, he felt very much like a successful Star Wars supporting cast member, like from like from the second trilogy. But one of the people you actually really liked, yeah. you know. I mean, that he he he. I don't know. I, th- I thought he was really good. What did you think? Yeah, no, I agree. There's it's this is not a Jar Jar Banks thing. Um, it's he's interesting because he is elemental to Quill's story. Uh, he's a person who's largely responsible for like rescuing Quill from. Um, what could have been imprisonment or death, and he's got a he's got a badass weapon. You know that sort of whistle arrow that he uses is, you know, is kind of the stuff of great CGI set pieces. You know what I mean? That that sequence where he breaks it out and kind of simultaneously kills seven or eight Kree soldiers at, at, in, mm-hmm. in one fell swoop. It's just like really fun movie stuff. I remember being in the theater when that came out and people just being like, oh shit, you know? And yeah, you, you want to have stuff like that in these movies with, with characters yeah. like this. I know that, I'm sure that these conversations took place and they'd be so interesting to listen to, you know, to be able to go back in time and listen to. But throughout this movie, they did a really good job of having uh, these sort of like really like incredible weapons, you know, like almost like, unbeatable weapons but but the, but they have but they, but they are beatable i don't i don't really know exactly how to how to say this but they have you know these these plasma guns yes. that can or you know ray guns that can like that can shoot a demigod and knock him on his ass <laughs> yes uh, i believe but, it's but a hadron find, gun is, is what yeah. the rocket is holding but they find so many ways to to you know make make the users and and the weapons themselves sort of fallible in other in other instances i couldn't help i mean when you go back and watch the scene where they all meet for the first time, um, where uh, Peter Quill has the orb thing, and then and Gamora, and then separately uh, Rocket and 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 Groot are there trying to steal it from him. Put him in the bag. Put him in the bag. No, not her. Third genders, man. Hiding. That's not fair. Um. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's like a physical, it's a foot race, right? And they, and, and there's, there's a bunch of like space, you know, like sci-fi weaponry, uh, involved in the, in the, in the, in the, you know, hijinks. But at the end of the day, it's like running and tripping and falling and getting tossed in a bag, you know? And there's, there's this like incredible just simplicity and like just tactile simplicity to the way that this universe is constructed that, that I think is really helpful in like, you know, making it seem, recognizable I, com- I completely seem- agree I mean it's it's an amazing thing to say about a movie that features a giant humanoid tree and a anthropomorphic machine gun toting raccoon that <laughs> this movie feels tactile and it feels real in some respects but it is true and you can see that James Gunn is bringing a little bit of that um, you know that physical handmade kind of creation that he got from trauma that he got from slither that he got from super and is bringing it into this world that is you know often overrun with cgi the movie was entirely made at um shepherd and studios in in england and a lot of it is on green screen but you don't know you don't feel that way you know like you know if you watch a movie like mortal engines and you're like no one ever saw a real landscape while they were making this movie um yeah this is not that this feels like when they're in the kiln, it feels like they're in the kiln. You know, when they're in the ship, it feels like they're in a, a broken down old ship, much like the Millennium Falcon. You know, that's the kind of feeling that you want to have while watching these movies. Total testament to um, design, really. It's just the design of the yeah. movie that happens ahead of time. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, they made all the. I mean, I, there's there's so many different ways this conversation can go, but but all of the all of the decisions, you know, all of those seemingly obvious simple decisions uh, were made just accidentally or, or or deliberately. I mean, everything just was was done. It just seems so perfectly. Talk to me a little bit about Rocket Raccoon and, and Groot. Um, I think it, mm. we've talked about a lot of characters thus far. You know, my perception of them without much historical knowledge is that these are the characters that unlock this movie for a wider audience, that this is what takes it into nine-year-olds want to see this. Um, I know my my dear friend Zach is endlessly fascinated and amused by Rocket Raccoon and Bradley Cooper's mm-hmm. decision to uh, use his power of celebrity to voice this raccoon. Um, what do you make of the way that they're they're used here as as two-fifths of the Guardians of the Galaxy? Um, yeah, I mean, they're great. It's like, it's, you, you take the, you know, what would normally be, I would say one comic relief character and you make it almost half the team. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and listen, there's no shortage of comedy in any other, other quarters of, of the guardians of the galaxy. Um, you know, one thing I was going to say when we were talking about Batista and Drax, um, that I, that I didn't say was that, um, you know, one of the one of the reasons why he's really important is that there's there is a lot of CGI on the team, and and you know he, the fact that his despite the fact that he's under you know pancaked uh, you know green makeup, um, that his face you know his human face is very important. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and and being able to show some real emotion, but Rocket and Groot are you know very very well done. You know, and there's not there, and especially you know in Guardians two, you get a lot, a lot more of. The human side, I guess that's the wrong term, but whatever. The human side of Rocket, um, and and the younger the younger Groot certainly has a different sort of appeal. But yeah, they do. They unlock, they unlock a you know the kids audience. I think they unlock a you know a, just a just a general a generally like a non sci fi non superhero audience too because they're just like they're just they're they're cute characters. They could be they could be in a Pixar movie, you know. But they're but they're also foul mouthed or at least in Rocket's part and and uh, and you know, they're action characters as well. Let's do a little casting what ifs. We're bought, we borrowed this category from our sister show, The Rewatchables. Um, you know, you mentioned that Lee Pace went up for Peter Quill. Here are some other people that went up for this role. Joel Edgerton, Jack Houston of Boardwalk Empire fame, Jim Sturgis, and Eddie Redmayne all tested for the role and oh. uh, did not get it. The other actors who were considered were uh, Zachary Levi, who you may know, know now as Shazam, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Michael Rosenbaum, and John Gallagher Jr. of The Newsroom. This just, I don't think any of those people really would have made sense. It's interesting how... Zachary Levi would have been really interesting. Yeah, I I guess he could have pulled it off. But yeah, I mean, I think that they... And and, and part of that's why I think that reading that made me think that Chris Pratt was probably a given... And that there was, I mean, more more so than they let on at the beginning. Maybe not. I mean, maybe 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 it, it it did seem sort of ridiculous at the time. But I mean, he's just he's just so. It's hard to imagine, and re- it's hard to imagine reading any of those people into the role after he's done it. Yeah, I'm I'm very thankful that it was Pratt. Uh, as far as Drax the Destroyer goes, there were a few what ifs that are also kind of interesting relative to the DC universe. Isaiah Mustafa was up for the role. You may remember him from the Old Spice commercials. Uh, Brian Patrick Wade, <laughs> who has had a run on The Big Bang Theory, and Jason Momoa, who is, of course, now Aquaman, who uh, I think you and I last podcasted about him when we spoke about comic book movies uh, for that movie in December. I, I'm glad it was Dave Bautista. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was that that was definitely the right choice. And, and, and again, it was an unlikely choice. I mean, not that any of those other names were... were um, you know, uh, givens, you know, there was no, uh, this, there, there was no like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the running or anything, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Dave Bautista was the right, was definitely the right choice in retrospect. You know, one other thing that we didn't really talk about is the presence of John C. Riley and Glenn Close, who are uh, quite literally two of the greatest actors of their respective generations <laughs> with, I, I'm so, we have to talk about them. They're, they're very important. Uh, so I don't know very much about Nova Prime and the Nova Initiative and this entire group of <laughs> fighting force. They're sort of like, is they an international police in, on Xandar? Um, yeah, I mean, I remember Nova, the character, I mean, I'm very hazy on this stuff. There's, I mean, there's a character named Nova whose comics I read on and off, um, who I who I guess was like a member of this police force, but he was back on Earth or uh, I don't know something something to that effect. Um, the Nova Corps is obviously just sort of has the stock function in these movies as the you know galactic police force. Um, but 
as far as you know, we're talking about the comedy in the movie and 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 all the casting decisions that were made. This movie, when you when you watch it, both in the the very first trailer that you saw, the way I mean, it's interesting to go back and watch the first trailers because they have like traditional Marvel music until the very end. Uh, they're sort of like trying to it's trying to put itself over as like a sci fi movie, as a sort of serious movie, and then. You see the characters, and they're sort of, you know, implicitly, inherently, a little bit funny. But, but it's the existence of John C. Riley that cues the, re- the 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 viewer in on the fact that this is going to be a, a tongue in cheek movie, most definitely. And, and and he serves that purpose in the movie too, because there's funny moments, way many funny moments before he pops up. But to have him show up and arrest Peter Quill and just be like, "Hey, I know this guy. This guy's got a code name," and it's just it it just takes. It just takes the piss out of the entire enterprise in a, in a just lovely way, and uh, and and I can't imagine anybody else. I mean, of all of the roles in the movie, he, I, I actually think he might be the most irreplaceable. That's really funny. I mean, it's interesting because you're right, but I, I also got the impression that John C. Riley's character was going to be more important when I first saw the film, and he's not necessarily elemental to the story, even though you're right that he unlocks something about the tone of the movie when you see him. Um, what about Glenn Close? <laughs> you know, if yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna spend the Glenn Close dollar, is this the character you want to spend it on? I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't know that there's. I mean, at this point in the Marvel, I mean, they they obviously had planned very far out. Um, I don't know if there's another role that she could that that would have been more appropriate for her. Um, I you know she definitely brings a little bit of you know gravitas to the movie uh, and John C. Riley as well in a different way that 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 the movie wouldn't have otherwise had. You know, I mean, we do have scenes with just them talking, and those scenes are important to the film, you know? And and if those were just two character actors who were, you know, available to strap on a spacesuit, like, they would not have been the same film. It, would it wouldn't have felt the same. You're right, but Shoemaker, picture this. Glenn Close is Thanos. You in? Hmm. 100% in, okay. yes. Uh, I think one of the most important aspects of this movie is the music. Um, I, yeah. I mentioned earlier the, the the Redbone moment at the very beginning, which indicates what kind of movie we're going to have here. Um, here's a little bit of information about how James Gunn landed on this. He said, when choosing the songs, Gunn revealed that he started the process by reading the Billboard charts for all of the top hits of the 70s, downloading a few hundred songs that were semi-familiar, ones you would recognize but might not be able to name off the top of your head, and creating a playlist for all the songs that would fit the film tonally. He added that he would listen to the playlist on his speakers around the house. Sometimes he would be inspired to create a scene around a song, and other times he had a scene that needed music. He would listen through the playlist, visualizing various songs, figuring out which would work best. Now, I think that this, for the most part, is how many filmmakers make their their musical choices. You know, I've talked to a lot of directors on this show. They all have Spotify playlists of songs in the back of their head that they want to use in a movie at some point. I heard James Gunn recently say that um, the Redbone song that I mentioned is the song that he had heard the most of any song in his entire life, which is an interesting way to set this out. You know, Gunn is a child of the 70s as well, and so you can feel a kind of admiration for certain aspects Uh of like, I want to say like a pop rock that no longer exists in this country. Um, You know, I think Blue Swede's Hooked on a Feeling has become like the emblematic song from this movie. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Hooked on a Feeling. And so I think somewhat surprisingly, maybe even to Disney, uh, this soundtrack kind of took off a little bit and these songs became really powerful because of the way that it's told with Peter Quill and his, you know, his Walkman and the, the mixtape that he receives from his mom and the songs that he leans on. What do you think of the, uh, the integration of the music in this story? I mean, again, I think just being in space allows you to just do something that would have seemed corny. I mean, even though the, even though this is the opposite of space, right? This is bringing Earth into outer space. Um but yeah, I mean, listen, if you had said, and if you're, if, again, if you're sitting at the notes, you know, giving notes at the, at the table read of the script or something, and you're just like, wait, the main character has a Walkman from the planet Earth that has <laughs> the hits of the 70s on it. And it's just like, give me a break. You know, that's just, come on. Um, but it just works. You know, it just, it, it, it absolutely, it's, it, it absolutely works. And it, 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 um, you know the the movie opens obviously with with Peter Quill's backstory, or at least you know the 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 inciting incident in it. Um, but it but the but what the the music does do a good job of reminding you throughout that this is not 
Luke Skywalker or Han Solo. This is a human, you know. I mean, I guess right. we'll, we we don't want to spoil too much about you know, how that's not entirely true, but how this is a a human uh, being who's just you know traveling through space, uh, fish out of water. I mean, he's even though he's very comfortable in the water, and 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 that sort of you know really helps you identify with him as your central character. Yeah, I agree. I think the the soundtrack in particular is a good mix too of extremely identifiable songs like the movie ends with Jackson 5's I Want You Back and Baby Groot dancing to that song but you've also got the Raspberries Go All The Way and Elvis, Elvin Bishop's Fooled Around and Fell In Love you know these are songs that the minute that you hear them you know exactly what they are but you probably couldn't name the artist and that's a smart trick it's a, a, tri- it's smart, a trick mm-hmm. so smart that I feel like he's basically pulling specifically from what Richard Linklater did in Dazed and Confused, which, you know, there's some crossover here in terms of the songs that are chosen. Yeah. And also uh, K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s from Reservoir Dogs. I would say that, <laughs> you know, well, Tarantino kind of invented this strategy. Yes. This is, this is I, I don't feel like, and I love Tarantino, I don't feel like James Gunn is patting himself on the back when he's pulling these songs together. You're absolutely right. right? I mean, this, right. Is, this, this is, these are songs specifically chosen because of their familiarity to elicit a reaction. You know, they're not, they're not the most familiar songs, but they're familiar songs. And they're not, he's not, you know, he's not saying, I mean, it's a Spotify playlist he was talking about, right? He's not talking about, you know, pulling vinyl from the back of an old warehouse or whatever. You know, this is, this is a, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a love letter to a certain era of, of American music. And, but it's a, it's an era that, that, you know, many viewers were present for, or at least, have experienced on, you know, oldies radio. No, you're you're absolutely right and and that's the right way to think about it that this is a it's a pop confection in a lot of ways. The movie is meant to reach a lot of people the same way that Fooled Around and Fell in Love is, was meant to reach a lot of people in 1977. Um, yes. I I'm kind of generally interested in the idea of whether or not this movie is a deconstruction because, you know, as I mentioned, this movie the specials that Gunn wrote over 15 years ago now and then Super and he's also a producer in this movie that's coming out in May called Brightburn. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that one that's coming soon, David. Um, no, I'm not at all. So it's essentially a superhero origin story about a young kid who is imbued with powers, but who who breaks bad, who turns evil. And so it's a sort of mm-hmm. superhero horror movie. And I haven't seen it. It looks very good, and it definitely has Gunn's thumbprint on it. But all of those stories are sort of fundamentally disassembling the things we think we know about superheroes and trying to underline yeah. what's interesting about them. One movie that we didn't discuss up top when we were talking about supers that I, that I was trying to think of is, is The Specials, which he wrote and didn't direct. Right. Um, but it was a superhero movie with, again, a sort of star-studded cast for the scale of the film with Thomas Hayden Church and Rob Lowe and uh, Judy Greer, uh, Paget Brewster, amongst others. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he's always been very interested in in deconstructing the form, and I think it's sort of interesting that he ended up on Guardians of the Galaxy because it's the least of the form, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's 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 not a this isn't the Avengers, this or at least it hasn't it hasn't really evolved into the Avengers yet. But he's able to take, um, you know, the parts of superhero movies that that you know or, or comic books that we. Um, that we love, you know, like, you know, seeing, seeing the heroes on the, on the cover of the comic book about to fight, you know I mean? That's like a central part of my, my childhood experience. I can't wait to see Wolverine and the Hulk go at it before they team up for whatever inevitable right. mission they have. Um, and all that stuff. I mean, he, he, he knows the, the formula frontwards and backwards. And so he's able to, you know, play around with it in a way that I don't think every director, even in the Marvel, even in the MCU is, is able to. Yeah. There's this great quote, uh, from Joss Whedon, who is still consulting on these movies at this time in the run-up to Ultron. And he was asked about why James Gunn was the right person to make this movie. And he says, James Gunn is what makes me think it will work. He is so off the wall and so crazy, but so smart. Such a craftsman, and he builds from his heart. He loves the raccoon, needs the raccoon. He has a very twisted take on it, but it all comes from a real love for the material. It's going to be hard for the human characters to keep up. Uh, he needs the raccoon is something, maybe consider that for my tombstone, David. Um, <laughs> I, I I am sort of impressed by how seriously he's willing to take this stuff. And as you say, he kind of knows the form backwards and forwards. Um, I, I, I'm just kind of shocked by how, how he pulled this off. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing you, I mean, there's, there's no, you know, high enough level of praise for, I mean, there, for this movie in terms of execution, you know, I mean, you can, 
you can take exception to a lot of to a, a lot of individual elements of I'm sure if you if you desperately wanted to, but of all of the Marvel movies, I don't remember. I mean, there's none of them that where I walked out of the theater just being as like satisfied in a really positive way. Like there was just there was nothing there was nothing wrong with this movie. What do you think about Guardians becoming like a springboard for the rest of the story uh, at the end of it? You know, what do you think of Guardians two? What do you think of how they've integrated the characters into the wider story? Um. I mean, I think I, I think they've. I, I mean, I, I like it. You know, I mean, there's there's definitely a with the with you know the the most recent Avengers movie. There's a little bit of that excitement. I mean, there's not more than a little bit. There's a lot of excitement to see your favorite characters from literally different universes coming together and, and teaming up. Um, again, that's a, you know a central part of comic book uh, the comic book tradition, um, and that they're kind of like I said earlier, going into the the Guardians turf. To, to fight this battle um, is intriguing. I, I'm, I'm always going to be a little bit cautious about, you know, how far you can take space stories. Like I said, from the, from the very beginning of this podcast, that's never been my like cup of tea in, in the comic book world, but in the movie world, you know, I, I can't get enough of it. And I, and I think that, you know, they've given me really no reason to doubt that, that, <laughs> that this is a, this is a good, you know, direction forward. I mean, listen, everything is everything is science fiction right i mean all of these all of these superhero stories are definitionally like science fiction stories um they're not necessarily space stories i mean m- most of them are not um but the but the 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 tradition of of science fiction storytelling is it encompasses all of this stuff so it's not that it's not that much of a stretch to to you know shove all these characters together yeah i agree and even though I don't think that this movie, I, even though it clearly sets the stage for a lot of things that are going to come, one of the things that I do like about it is the stingers on this movie, the sort of after credit sequences, are, are largely inconsequential to the future of the series. You know, we we, mm-hmm. we see Dancing Baby Groot, as I said, uh, dancing to the Jackson 5 song. And then at the very end of the film, we see the collector again, and he is sitting in the destroyed ravages wreckage mm. of his all of his collections and sitting there drinking some co- sort of neon green cocktail is Howard the Duck uh, who of course was the star once upon a time of a movie of his own produced by George Lucas uh, a very unsuccessful movie um, you know I tend to forget that Howard the Duck is a Marvel creation um, yeah what, what was your reaction upon seeing that I mean it was hilarious right I mean it was it, it was very interesting and 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 thought-provoking in terms of the future of the of the MCU. I, I don't know if they're actively producing any movie, you know, a Howard the Duck movie, although that was certainly the expectation at the time. Yeah, I feel like I that think, went away. Think, you know, I feel like there was a yeah. there was a conversation about that and now it's gone. I know that we use the I know that we we use the phrase that that's a that's a flex, uh, maybe too much <laughs> in the Ringer uh headquarters, but I mean to 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 pull off Guardians of the Galaxy, which going in seemed like a real long shot, um, and then at the end be so confident in what you've just done that you can just be like, and now Howard the Duck, like that's a real flex, you know. <laughs> yes. I mean, even just a, even if there's no, even if you're never going to put him in anything else, um, it, it's it's a, it, I think it just in some ways it just shows that. Um, no matter how ridiculous you think that thing you just experienced was, there's further they could go. So, you know, um, be happy with what you have a little bit. We should also just talk a little bit at the end here about the James Gunn controversies and kind of how everything has come full circle. Um, mm-hmm. Last July, James Gunn was fired from the Guardians of the Galaxy series after making two very successful Guardians movies. Um, he had been writing and plotting Guardians 3 and a series of old tweets were uh, dredged up, very distasteful, uh, pretty unfunny tweets, I would say, but tweets from seven, eight, nine, ten years earlier, uh, you know, that included such controversial topics as pedophilia and rape. Disney took the, I would say, unusual measure of firing Gunn from the series after making two films with him for those tweets, which he apologized for. I can recall at the time, I don't, I don't remember how you felt about this, but I can certainly recall at the time thinking, well, this is not the right choice, and this is not how you handle an issue like this. Not, not for someone you've employed for, you know, coming up on a decade. Um, and then, lo and behold, uh, Gunn was a free agent. He signed on with the DC Universe to make a follow-up to David Ayer's uh, Suicide Squad movie. And then, for some reason, earlier this year, Marvel backtracked um, 
and has decided to rehire James Gunn to make Guardians 3. You know, in retrospect, what do you think about the last nine months of public flagellation for James Gunn and the fact that we are basically where we started now? It's weird. I mean, it's just weird. I don't, I, I it's, um, I, I mean, I'll make a, a another wrestling reference that nobody will understand, but it felt like when WWE fired Daniel Bryan uh, early on in his career, he like, he was part of a, uh, a bunch of wrestlers ran in and sort of just like attacked everybody at ringside and beat up the announcers and stuff. And Daniel Bryan, unfortunately choked the ring, the, the uh, ring announcer with his tie and the 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 act of like choking him with a tie and it was seemed was deemed a bridge too far and like the toy companies that advertised on the show just took exception to it so they had to fire him but they all knew he was coming back what so they fired him and then he went and he just did a world tour and wrestled around the wrestled around in all the indie promotions he used to work and then he just showed back up a few months later and everybody was excited and all of the you know all of the the complaining advertisers felt like okay like we've got our pound of flesh um it's weird in this case that like they let him go so cleanly that he went and made a movie for DC <laughs> yes. and then they just welcomed him back with open arms which and not only was it such a uh, you know I don't know if mea culpa is the right word but they they I mean they it was it was so clear that they knew they had made the wrong decision but they were they they weren't canny enough to sort of say just like sit back and we'll get you back on this thing they they de- functionally delayed you know another Guardians of the Galaxy movie probably for a year and you know, might have given a huge leg up to the competition. Um, it's the the whole thing is just it's 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 really a, just a, a bizarre turn of events. Yeah, that's what struck me too. I think I'm I'm reluctant to play try to play um you know intellectual chess with people's IP, but they definitely just gave an opening to DC, which was already in the process of figuring out how to make better and more coherent movies out of their properties. And James Gunn, as we, as you might have learned from listening to an hour of this podcast, is really good at making these movies. And yeah. even if Guardians 2, I think, is a little bit less successful than the original, it's still a very fun and clever movie that um, sort of animates what's great about some of the MCU. And so him getting a chance to basically right the wrongs of the original Suicide Squad uh, is just a net loss for Marvel. And I wonder if that more than some sort of moral reckoning is what made them realize that they should bring him back into the fold. Also, something that I, I noticed as I was reading about this movie, there's a real love affair between the actors in the movie and Gunn, and yeah. they came out very strongly for him when he got fired, and they really united it. I believe they wrote a Facebook letter of some kind to, to Disney to have him back, and there seems to have been a genuine bond forged among them, in part, I think, because Gunn either helped launch their careers in a significant way with these characters or gave them something new to do that challenged them and made them um, a little bit more interesting to the wider world. And that's actually kind of rare. You know, I think a lot of the time when you make, when you have a comic book movie and a comic book series, it's a little bit of a for hire thing. You know, you're bringing in somebody to kind of execute on a, on a continuity strategy. And Guardians is one of the few pieces inside of this MCU that actually, even though it links everybody together, kind of stands on its own. And that's one of the things I like about it, and I suspect that's one of the reasons why he's back. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the one of the best things that's come out of this movie uh, is is the sort of online persona of woke Dave Batista, you know, and <laughs> and he and he was he was more uh, you know outwardly supportive of James Gunn through that whole process than anybody else. Um, and and I'm sure part of that was that you know Gunn gave him an opportunity and 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 trusted him and 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 together they they found their way through to this you know really surprisingly important and central character in in, in the MCU. Um, but you know and, and and as terrible as those you know those jokes were, I mean this it's obviously a different it's just a different situation than some of the other ways that people have been you know brought down over the past several years and 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 I don't I mean obviously we don't need to go into whether or not the the witch hunt you know was in good faith or not but um but yeah I mean I think that at the end of the day it's a you know at least career wise at least commercially it's a real validation or vindication for James Gunn because it's you know regardless of what happened before um it's you know it's clear that Disney decided that like they didn't want to do a movie without him yeah, and in many ways, I'm glad they did. Uh, David, any final reflections on Guardians of the Galaxy? We've put a lot of uh, a lot of feeling out there. I know there's a whole lot, right? Um, I don't really have anything final to say except what I said at the top, which was um, it's been a real joy to rewatch it. You know, with some you know earnest concentration. But 
as excited as I'll keep be, you know, as I'll continue to be for future movies and to see these people in the Avengers movies and and, and all the other MCU things. Um, the longer this sort of serial plays out, the better because this is seeing these characters together is great. Um, but that first, but but this movie is just it's fantastic. I mean, it's just a it's just a a, a gem, you know, and uh, it's just really impressive how they've sort of pulled all those pieces, all these disparate parts together, and uh, made just like. Again, I, I I don't want to say unobjectionable because it sounds like it sounds like faint praise, but it's but I but I really mean it's just like if if you could have if if anybody had come up and told you that they're making a space movie with some comic book characters that nobody really knew of, the comic book fans weren't even like these weren't these weren't you know part of the the firmament, um, and you know there was a talking raccoon with guns and a tree and a you know a couple two different green people that uh, you know don't have any that aren't actually related and and. Uh, you know, a human at the center of the whole thing, and that like literally every member of your family would dig it. Like that would have been impossible to to wrap your head around. But they they made it work, you know. And uh, it's just it's it's just really cool. David, would you say that we are Groot? <laughs> uh, now and forever, we are always Groot. <laughs> Thanks, David. I really appreciate this. Thank you, man. 